You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 16, we're going to read together verses 5 through verse 15, beginning at verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Let us pray together. Our gracious Father, we are thankful that you have revealed to us the the glorious nature of our triune God and that you have revealed in the pages of Scripture through the mouth of your Son and and through the, the authorship of John, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit. We thank you for these glorious passages which describe the the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to each other. And, and we, O oh God, pray that you would send your Spirit to be our teacher and our guide to teach us more of Christ. May you be honored through the explanation of truth and our reflection upon it. Engage our hearts and our minds today in the truth concerning Christ that you might be glorified as we gaze upon the Son. We thank you for your grace, your kindness in giving us your word, and ask your blessing upon our time of study now and, and reflection upon your word in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, in 1996 is when I first became pastor at Kootenai Community Church, and one of the very first things that I did was to get involved in a local pastor's fellowship. And it was, I thought at the time, a, a group of very like-minded men who all sort of felt the same way about essential doctrines. There were no female pastors there. There were no pastors of churches that openly denied the gospel or preached heresy. And so I was part of that fellowship for a period of time. After a couple of years, it became very obvious to me that I had far less in common with that group of men than I had originally thought. And the straw that broke the camel's back, it actually wasn't a straw. It was like a bale of straw thrown on the camel all at one time. But uh, one of the things that made it crystal clear that this was this was not the waters in which I was going to be swimming was at one of our pastor's meetings, one of the pastors there, who still pastors a church here in town, said to all of us publicly, we were discussing a theological issue, and, and he said to us, there are actually three different gospels revealed in the New Testament. Paul preached the gospel of grace, James preached the gospel of works, and Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. And you can get saved by any one of those three gospels. And the look on my face was much like the look on your face at the time, but I looked around the room and two-thirds to three-quarters of the other pastors in that group were all nodding their head in hearty agreement, and I realized this is not going to be where I'm going to be spending any more time. That was the very last time that I was part of that pastor's fellowship. That was the conservative, gospel-centered pastor's fellowship that was in town. It only would go downhill from there. But while I was part of that group, uh, in fact, it wasn't long after I became pastor here that somebody had come into that group. He was a new pastor in town, and he came to Sandpoint to start a church. And when I heard that, I thought the same thing that you probably thought. 
Start a church, another one in Sandpoint, really? Another church is what Sandpoint needs? We've got more churches than there are bars and, and uh, real estate offices combined, and that's saying something, but he came to start a church, and it was not just any church, but a charismatic church, and not just any charismatic church, but a charismatic church that was in the, in the vein of the Brownsville Revival and the Toronto Blessing Movement and uh, the Toronto Airport Vineyard Blessing Movement. And that was the Brownsville revival still in the 1990s under the leadership of Rodney Howard Brown, who's a false prophet and a false teacher and a heretic. It was kind of in vogue at the time, and it was still popular, and, and a lot of people were on board with that. So he came to start that uh, church, now the, uh, a church in that vein. Now, that Brownsville revival, and I use the term revival here in the loosest possible sense, the Brownsville revival was so named because of its origins in Brownsville, Florida. But really, it didn't originate there. It kind of made its mark in the United States there, but it originated in Toronto, Ontario, and uh, it was sort of an offshoot of what was later to be called the Toronto Blessing. And there was a small charismatic church that had started meeting in an, in an airport in Toronto, and there was an outpouring or an outbreaking of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that outpouring and outbreaking of the Holy Spirit, there's all these manifestations and and uh, that became, it went on for months and even years, and eventually it was exported all over the world. Now, the only, there was only one good thing to come out of Canada, and I got her. And the Toronto blessing and the outpouring of the Spirit is no exception to that rule. And it became uh, pretty prominent all across the United States in the late 1990s, and so this church was started to sort of bring that blessing to Sandpoint. And... Uh, so how do you how do you start a church when you want to start it in that vein? Well, of course, you schedule a revival. Now, anytime anybody speaks about scheduling a revival, you know that they're off the beam entirely. You don't schedule a revival. Because you know what a revival is? A revival is not some super supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit that he, he doesn't do on other occasions, but now that he does specifically this new thing. That's not what a revival is. A revival is an increase in the amount of activity that the Spirit of God has been doing all along. So right now, the Spirit of God convicts people. People are sanctified. They repent of their sin. They believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going on right now all over the world. But when a revival breaks out, we dub it a revival, but all it is is an increase in the frequency and intensity and the number of those activities that the Spirit of God has always been doing. It's just now become more visible. And you don't schedule this. You don't say we're going to have a revival in such and such a week and it's going to last seven days. And hopefully uh, the Holy Spirit has cleared his calendar and he can show up or that we will just go through some motions and dispense the Spirit of God and uh, alakazam, alakazoom, and the Spirit shows up and does his thing with some bizarre manifestations. That is the idea of revival in many circles, but that is not, that's not a revival. It's not a true revival. So they're going to schedule a revival or have it out at the fairgrounds. Now, of course, he wanted all the pastors in town to promote this amongst their people and to advertise it and get all their people to show up in hopes that the Spirit would break out and we would all get the Spirit and the anointing of the Spirit. But I knew what was going on. I was familiar with the airport, Toronto airport blessing, the Toronto blessing. I was familiar with the Brownsville revival and Rodney Howard Brown and all those teachers. None of that was new to me. So there was no way in the world that I was going to promote that to anybody who attended Kootenai Community Church or to anybody at all. But I went. And I went not because I was hoping to get the Holy Spirit, I went because I wanted to see firsthand what it was that I was teaching against and what it was that I was opposing. And it was exactly what I expected that it was going to be. And they had rented a, a large circus tent, about the same square footage of this building. And I will pause there so you can insert your own joke at that point. A large circus tent. And when I went in there, it was what I had come to anticipate of any kind of, uh, any one of these kind of blessings. People were laying down in the aisles, catatonic. People were in trances. 
people uh, standing up, raising hands, some people speaking in tongues, the slaying of the Spirit, people falling down in the Spirit and staggering around like they're drunk in the Spirit, and one lady dancing around the tent, uh, swirling her ribbons like this, spraying the Holy Spirit on people. At one point, somebody got up front and he began to uh, give prophecies and visions and dreams of all the stuff that was going to be happening in Sandpoint and this great outpouring of the Spirit that was going to happen. And they were singing songs about the Spirit and praying to the Holy Spirit and calling out to the Holy Spirit. And that whole circus and all of the manifestations, as bizarre as they were, the false prophecies, the false teachings, the abuse of Scripture, the bizarre manifestations, all of that stuff more akin to what you would see in some African tribe that worships demons and has never received the light of the truth, not something you would expect to see among the people of God who love Christ and are focused upon His Word. All of those manifestations and everything that went with it, it was all blamed on the Holy Spirit. He got the bad rap for all of that. Now, to me, that was blasphemy. And I said as much. But if you don't go along with stuff like that, in fact, if you are in my theological boat or, or akin to where I'm at theologically, which I'm guessing probably most of you here are, if you're in my theological boat, then you are accused of being out of step with what the Spirit is doing if you don't jump on board with that. If you don't promote it, you don't get into it, then you don't have the anointing. and You don't have the outpouring and you don't have the Spirit. And you're not in step with what God is doing in the church today. And so you're actually guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and opposing what God is doing today. This is a new, it's a fresh thing that the Spirit of God is doing, and He's pouring out His Spirit in the church. If you don't get on board, then you're fighting against what God is doing. And of course, all of that is nothing, all those accusations are nothing more than question begging, since the real issue is something far more fundamental. Is that indeed an outpouring and an outworking of the Holy Spirit? Now, if it is, then it's true. I am guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and resisting what God is doing in the world today. But if those manifestations and those activities and that emphasis is not the work of the Holy Spirit, then, in fact, those who promote it are promoting something that is not at all the work of the Holy Spirit. And then it it is not I or you who are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, but those who say that the Spirit of God is doing something that the Spirit of God is, in fact, not at all doing. And who wants to be behind the times? Right? Don't you want to be fresh and relevant and cutting edge and on the, on the cutting edge of what God is doing in society and in the world? And that's how it's pitched to people. This is the new thing that the Spirit of God is doing. But listen, when you jettison the Word of God as your only standard of truth and the revelation of how the Spirit of God works, when you get rid of this, then you can open yourself up to any kind of bizarre activity and simply saying, this is the new thing that the Spirit of God is doing in the churches today. This is the new thing that the Spirit of God is. This is what the Spirit is speaking. How do we know it comes from the Spirit? Because the Spirit told me it came from the Spirit. And that's how we know that this is what the Spirit of God is doing. And you don't want to oppose God. And you don't want to oppose what the Spirit is doing. And everybody wants to be on the cutting edge of what God is doing in our world. Who wants the old stuff? Who wants that old manifestation of the Spirit of God? Who wants the old truth? This stuff was written 2,000 years ago. I want the fresh new stuff that is spoken to me right now. And, and right now, it's still small voice. See, there's an allure to that. But it's a track and it is a trap and it is a trick. So the question is, how do we know what the Spirit of God does and what the ministry of the Spirit of God looks like? Does it look like those things or is it something entirely different? It is actually something entirely different and it is to Scripture and Scripture alone that we have to turn to find out how the Spirit of God works and what it is that He does and what marks or characterizes a genuine work of the Spirit of God. So we do that and we turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. And we looked last week at one of the two of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers is that of comforting and strengthening, encouraging and testifying through believers. And then we looked at the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world. And it is that of 
convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. And now we turn to the work of the Holy Spirit again, and his emphasis is on uh, the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. And we see two elements to the Spirit of truth's ministry. First, he guides believers into truth. He guides Christians into truth. And second, he glorifies the one who is the God of truth, who is truth incarnate, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He guides believers into truth, and then he reveals or discloses, glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth incarnate. So in verses 13, uh, sorry, 12 and 13, we have him, we see the Holy Spirit guiding us into truth. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now this whole passage, beginning in verse 5, going down through verse 15, this is the fourth of four passages on the Holy Spirit in the farewell or upper room discourse. It is also the longest passage out of all of the passages in John. It's the longest passage teaching about the person of, and work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, and I've been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks, I think this is the longest passage on the Holy Spirit in any of the four Gospels. In any of the four Gospels. So the emphasis here is on the work of the Spirit of God, and Jesus wants us to understand that when he sends the Spirit of God to strengthen and to testify through the disciples and to encourage them, to comfort them, to equip them for ministry, what is that ministry going to look like? What will characterize the Spirit's ministry? It will be an emphasis on the truth. First, he will guide Christians into all truth. He'll guide us into truth. Look at verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. What does he mean by that? The word bear there is actually the word that means to carry. It was used of picking up something, sometimes something very heavy, and carrying it off to someplace. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, there are, there are many more things that I have to say to you, but you cannot carry them, you cannot bear them now. They weren't strong enough to handle all of the truth that he could have disclosed to them that evening. It might sound like, as you read chapters 14, 15, and 16, that Jesus is unloading the apple cart of theology on these disciples that evening. And in some sense, he was. There is all kinds of profound and eternal and glorious truths in this passage, in this whole upper room discourse. But there's so much more that he could have told them that they at that time were not strong enough to hear. Like what, you say? Well, even at this point, they did not understand fully the depth of his sufferings and what that would mean. They did not understand that he would rise from the dead. They didn't understand or grasp yet that he would go back and ascend to the Father in glory, that he would sit down at the Father's right hand and begin, having completed his redemptive work, he would begin his intercessory work to now make intercession for all those whom he saves and whom he saves fully and perfectly. He would begin that work. The disciples at this point did not understand that the the kingdom was yet far off. They were expecting that it would happen soon. In fact, before Jesus was ascended, ascended to heaven and taken up into heaven, the disciples asked him, is it now that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still expecting that after 40 years of, or 40 days of teaching. They were expecting that the kingdom would be established now. And Jesus didn't reveal to them then what, when it would be established. He simply says, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has fixed, but you will be my witnesses and go off into Judea and Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth and preach the gospel. They didn't understand, and they would find out later on that the kingdom of Christ would come to entail Gentiles. The Gentiles would be brought into the body of Christ, and they would be in equal footing with Jews who were the the ones who had the covenants and the promises and the Scripture. They didn't at this point know that they would not even see the kingdom of God in their lifetime. They did not even at this moment realize that they would live full lives and be martyred and and die, and then thousands of years would pass, hundreds at least, maybe not thousands, because maybe it's not 2,000, but at least almost 2,000 years would pass before they would be resurrected and enjoy the coming kingdom. 
Now, all of those are glorious truths. They're eternal truths. They're beautiful and encouraging truths. But they weren't ready to handle that at that point. He could have unloaded all of that on them. Do you think they would have been slightly overwhelmed? They were already having so much of their Jewish expectation, their upbringing, completely flipped on its head by the events that were unfolding that night. And Jesus, because He knows the hearts of all men, He also knew His disciples. And just as the Lord does not give us more trials than we can endure and more temptations than we can handle, He does not give us more truth than we can bear at any given time. And He knew that for these disciples, we're just going to have to go little by little, but when the Spirit of God comes, He will give you not only those further truths, but He will give to them the strength to bear or carry those further truths. So now look at verse 13. He is called, this Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. This is the third time in this upper room discourse, that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Truth. Now, I don't think it's accidental. I think that Jesus is trying to emphasize something. He's trying to emphasize that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. Truth is the idea being communicated. He is the Spirit who is the Holy Spirit, and because He is the Spirit of God, and because He is one with God in nature and in substance, and shares the essence of God, He is the Spirit of Truth because God is a God of Truth. And truth is God's nature, and truth is the foundation of His throne. All that He speaks is true, all that He does is true. He is the God of truth, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Look at chapter 14, verse 26. But He, oh no, sorry, it's verse 15, chapter 15, verse 16 is the first time. I will ask the Father, and He will give to you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the Father, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him. The Spirit of truth cannot be received by the world. Why? Because the world lies under the sway of the Father of lies. And the world believes the Father of lies and lives under lies and loves lies and loves darkness. And for that reason, they cannot receive or know or understand or apprehend or grasp the Spirit of truth. Chapter 16. Uh, sorry, chapter 15, verse uh, 25. Is that it? Let me find it. No, sorry, chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And there the Spirit of truth is the one who proceeds from the Father. So God is a God of truth, and the Spirit who proceeds from the Father proceeds with his nature and his essence, his character, and he is the Spirit of truth. And so as the Spirit of truth, he guides us as Christians into all truth. Now what does it mean when Jesus says or promises that the Spirit of God, in verse 13, would guide you into all the truth? What does he mean by that? He will guide you into all the truth. Does that mean that each of us has a guarantee that everything that we believe is right and there's no possibility that any of us can get anything wrong. Is that what he's talking about? We need to be careful to think, we need to think carefully about what it means that the Spirit of God would guide us into all truth. Let me give you a couple of statements that sort of help crystallize this a little bit. Primarily, this is a promise to the disciples for a further and future inspiration. Primarily, this is a promise to the disciples of further and future inspiration. Keep in mind who the context was. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the eleven. Judas is absent. And he is saying to them something akin to what he said back in chapter 14. Let me get my chapters right. 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. There is a truth-giving and a truth-revealing ministry that the Spirit of God had. Primarily to those 11 men, those disciples, later the apostles, and then through the Apostle Paul, this was a promise of revelation. This is Jesus pre-authorizing the writing of the New Testament. He is saying to them, "You, will, I will send you the Spirit of God, and He will guide you into revealing further things that He was not going to reveal to them that evening. When did that happen? 
Well, that probably happened. Probably what he is describing here most specifically applies to after his ascension, the Spirit of God came, and these men came to be the instruments of divine revelation as they wrote the New Testament books. And this is a promise of that revelation. Now, secondarily, it is a promise to us as we reflect upon the nature of the Spirit that we have also one who guides us into truth. How does the Spirit of God guide you and I into truth? Is it through direct divine revelation where we hear God's voice speaking to us and we receive messages? Is that how the Spirit of God guides us into truth? He has delivered for us once for all the faith. This is the truth. So how does the Spirit of God guide us into truth? When I read this book and I study this book, and when you and I hear the Word of God preached and taught, and our minds are engaged in understanding the meaning of the text, and when we understand the meaning of the text, we hear the voice of God in the text as we hear what God says through the text, that is how the Spirit of God guides us into truth. What the, what the Spirit of God does amongst us, whenever the Word of God is preached from up here by me or anybody else who preaches the Word of God, as the meaning of the text is communicated to you, you are actively engaged in reflecting upon the meaning of the text, embracing the meaning of the text, working through in your mind, and the Spirit of God guides us and illuminates us in the understanding of this truth that has been once for all delivered to the saints. And so now, today, the Spirit of God illuminates the truth that He has given. He is not in the business of revealing new truth or contradictory truth or fresh truth or truth that was true today that wasn't true a hundred years ago. That's not how the Spirit of God works. Now, He is our guide into truth. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says the Spirit of God will guide you into all the truth? It's not all the truth in terms of everything that is true, but it is all the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, which the very next verses spell out. He will take of those things which are mine and will disclose them to you. So it is the truth concerning Christ that the Spirit of God guides or directs us into. So the Spirit of God is at work guiding us and directing us and, and illuminating our minds in all of the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the focus of the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. He is the one who directs our attention and our thoughts and our hearts and our affections toward the Lord Jesus Christ as he leads us into the one who is truth incarnate. And in that process, that is the Spirit of God leading or guiding us into the truth and illuminating that truth to our mind. How does he do this? Well, the Spirit speaks and he hears, verse 13, He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. We all understand the Spirit of God doesn't have literal ears to hear and literal mouth to speak. So this is language that is obviously accommodated to our understanding. There is something of an anthropomorphism here, where a characteristic of God or of deity is sort of uh, humanized and made human so we can understand what is being said. It is not that the Spirit of God hears something and then speaks it, But what Jesus is communicating here is that the Spirit of God is not his own renegade deity. He's not off doing whatever he wants to do apart from the Father and the Son. But all that the Spirit does is the will of the Father and the Son as well. So all the activity of the Holy Spirit, all the revelation of the Holy Spirit, the illuminating, the convicting, the regenerating, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, all of that the Spirit does in complete harmony with the Father and the Son because he doesn't do anything on his own initiative. He doesn't reveal truth that the Father and the Son don't want him to reveal. He doesn't speak things that the Father and the Son would have no part in. He's the Spirit of truth. So all that he does, he does in accordance with the Father and the Son. Now, from some of the things that get blamed on the Holy Spirit, you would think that their their view of the Trinity is that the Holy Spirit is the wild child of the Trinity. The wild child. So you got the Father who's straight-laced, buttoned up, he's serious about everything, he's got all kinds of laws, 
He's angry, or really angry, and he's mad at us. And then you have Jesus, who's the happy-go-lucky, uh, hippie-style, long-haired guy who just kind of hangs out, and his only moral standard was, thou shalt not judge, nothing is to be judged. And he's just sort of a, a happy-go-lucky, sort of revolutionary, um, wealth-redistributing, social-loving liberal. That's Jesus. And he just came to show us a new way. To kind of t- draw attention off of the Father, because we all misunderstood what God was like when the Father revealed Himself in the Old Testament. And then you got the Holy Spirit. And He's the wild child. He just cannot be controlled. He, he's likely to just make you start speaking in tongues for no reason whatsoever. He'll send a Chris Matthew style chill right down your leg. Just because He can. And you can't expect it. You never know where He's going to drop next. You could just be walking by somebody and raise Him from the dead or pour out His Spirit. And it's just uncontrollable. As if the Father and the Son are sitting in heaven saying, how are we going to get control of that person? And get Him to stop saying all of these, doing all of these bizarre things that we would have no part in. From the way that some people talk about the work of the Spirit of God, that is exactly what they portray. Now, is that what they would say? The Holy Spirit's the wild child? Some of them would. That whole Brownsville, Toronto blessing thing is kind of morphed into what is today the New Apostolic Reformation. And the, the, the claims are even more preposterous, the manifestations even more bizarre, and unfortunately the influence even more widespread. The Holy Spirit is not the wild child of the Trinity. He doesn't do anything on his own initiative. And all Jesus is saying here about the Spirit is the same thing he said about himself back in chapter 5. When he said in chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, Therefore Jesus answered and said to the Pharisees, who were accusing him of blasphemy because he claimed to be working on the Sabbath and doing all the work that the Father did, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. You remember that? The Son can do nothing of himself. He's not saying he's powerless. He's saying, I would never and can never do anything apart from the will of the Father. All that the Father does is what I do. Everything the Son did was in complete harmony with and submission to the Father. Unless it is something, nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That was John 5.30. John 5.19 and 20 and John 5.30. I cannot and I do not and I will not do anything on my own initiative. That's what Jesus said. He's now saying the same thing about the Holy Spirit. So he has told us about his relationship with the Father. So one in substance, one in will, one in nature, one in essence, two separate persons, but one God, that the Son does not come and do his own thing. But what he does is completely in harmony with the Father's will and nature. And now he's saying the same thing about the Spirit. The Spirit of God who is another helper of the same nature as me. He doesn't come and do stuff on his own initiative. He's not out here just rampaging through the earth, pouring out His power and gifts and doing all of this crazy wild stuff while the Father and the Son sit in heaven and wring their hands trying to figure out how to control Him. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. He does nothing on His own initiative. But all that He hears, that is, all that He gets from the Father and the Son, He speaks. Everything that He does, all of His activities and all of His doings, all of His all of His speaking and revealing and illuminating of truth, every activity and every action of the Spirit of God is in complete harmony with the Father and with the Son. He is the Spirit of truth. So what is it the Spirit loves? What does He promote? What does He defend? What does He preach? What does He proclaim? What is He interested in testifying to? What is the central focus of the Spirit of God in our world today? What is His desire? It's the truth. That is what He's after. He honors the truth. He is the Spirit of truth. Where you will find deep and profound 
exposition of Scripture, a reverential treatment of the truth of the text, and a love for truth and a hunger for truth, that is the work of the Spirit of God as He guides His people into truth. Not ecstatic experiences, not off-the-wall bizarre stuff that's never happened before, not new, not fresh, not contemporary, not cutting edge. A love for the truth. That is what marks people who are indwelt and controlled by the Spirit of God. A love for and hunger for the truth. He is the Spirit of truth, which means that He cannot embrace error. He cannot promote error. He cannot teach error. He doesn't mingle truth with error. He does not bless or promote the teachings of false teachers and heretics. He does not promote false prophecy. He doesn't mix true words with false man-made words. When the Spirit of God speaks, there is no error in it whatsoever. When you came in here today, you got a copy of the church newsletter. At least probably most of you did. Some of you may have missed it. There is in that newsletter an article which is a critical theological review of Sarah Young's book, Jesus Calling. It's the first half. second half comes out next month. Now, in that book, Jesus Calling, Sarah Young claims that Jesus revealed all of these revelations, all of these messages. And she was gracious enough to write them down so the rest of us can benefit from what Jesus was speaking to her. So she claims that this is divine revelation. And there's a little devotional, 365 of them, one for every day of the year, where Sarah Young reveals what Jesus showed her. That book, as you'll see next month in the second half of that review, that book has fallacy, uh, 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 factual errors in it. Errors concerning what things that Jesus said. It also abuses and misquotes scripture. It takes verses of scripture out of context and says this is the meaning of the text when in fact she gets the meaning of the text wrong. Now I ask you this. Are those revelations or messages that she got, those come from the Holy Spirit? He's the spirit of what? Truth. Truth. Jesus and the Holy Spirit do not get the meaning of scripture wrong. If I can get that, somebody who has a direct connection to God should be able to get that. The Holy Spirit does not mingle His truth with human error and just put it out there and leave it out there for us to sort through. When the Spirit of God speaks and He reveals something, it is true, it is truth, it is true truth, and it is absolute truth. And we don't have to weed through it and find the good stuff and call out the bad stuff and try and try and keep your filter up. The Spirit of God does not mingle His, His Word with human error. He is not responsible for the prophetic utterances, the still small voices, all of the bizarre nonsense that gets blamed on Him. You probably don't hear it much in, in settings like this, in environments like here, but it is not at all uncommon to hear people say that the Spirit of God is leading them to do something that is completely contradictory to Scripture. And as a violation of the will of God is revealed in the text of Scripture, and the Spirit of God gets blamed for it. And they sanctify it by saying, well, this is the Spirit's leading. The Spirit of God will never, ever, under any circumstances, ever lead anybody to do something that contradicts what He has written in Scripture, because He is the Spirit of truth. So first, his ministry is to guide you, guide us, guide all of us into the truth. Second, to glorify the one, the Son of God, who is the truth incarnate. Look at verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Now we're going to return back to this theme of him glorifying the Son. How does the Spirit of God glorify and honor the Son? By taking that which is the Son's and disclosing it to us. In verse 15, all things that the Father has are mine, Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now, what is the mine that is being described there? When Jesus talks about the spirit taking of that which belongs to me, which is mine, and disclosing it to you, what is he describing? I think he is describing there the nature and the essence and the glory of Christ. The spirit glorifies Christ by taking the truth about Christ, his majesty, his glory, his work, his essence, his nature, his character, his perfections, and revealing it and disclosing it to the hearts of God's people. And he does this not to the neglect of the Father. 
And that's why Jesus says in verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. In other words, we share the same perfections, the same nature, and the same glory. And so when the Spirit of God reveals all that belongs to Christ, He is revealing all that is the Father as well, in the person of the Son. I said last week, that, and it's a bad analogy, that when we gaze upon Christ, it is as if we are looking through a window at the nature of the triune God. We behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. So what does the Spirit want to do? The Father has willed to reveal Himself in the Son, not apart from the Son, but in and through the Son. No one has seen the Father at any time. But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that is Jesus Christ, He has declared or revealed the Father to us. Nobody has seen the essence of the Father, but when we gaze upon the Son, we see all that can be seen of the Father in human flesh. So what is, how does the Spirit glorify God? Not to the neglect of the Father, but by revealing Christ to us in the truth and leading us into the truth so that we see Christ, we see the Father and we see the Holy Spirit because to look upon Christ is to look upon the fullness of God that dwells in bodily form. Do you get that? So what is the goal of the Spirit of God? Is the one who is the Spirit of truth to reveal the truth, to point people's affection and attention to the Lord Jesus Christ so that in looking upon Him, we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the ministry of the Spirit. It is Christocentric. That is to say that everything that the Spirit does is about the Son. The Spirit does not glorify Himself. The Spirit does not point to Himself. The Spirit does not manifest Himself. The Spirit does not draw attention to His gifts, His power, His manifestations, the evidences of it. He's not the Spirit of emotions. He's not the Spirit of ecstatic experiences. He's not the Spirit of liver quivers. He's not the Spirit of goosebumps or or leg frills. He's none of those things. He is the Spirit of truth. And He is the Spirit of truth in glorifying Jesus Christ and pointing everybody to Him. The Spirit sits back, as it were, and puts attention upon Christ. And so listen carefully. Any ministry, any church, any preacher, any movement, any fad, anything that takes our attention off of Christ and puts it upon the Holy Spirit is not the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to put attention on Christ. Any movement that puts attention on the Spirit is not the work of the Spirit. Now, if there's one thing that characterizes the modern charismatic movement, it is a focus upon the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the revelations of the Holy Spirit, messages from the Holy Spirit, dreams and visions, theology of the Spirit, Pentecost. Listen, I do not believe that the modern charismatic movement is a movement of the Holy Spirit. If it were, it would not be focused on the Holy Spirit. It would be focused on Christ. That's the telltale sign. Any movement, any movement, any emphasis on the Spirit of God is not the Spirit of God's work. Steve Lawson writes this, The Holy Spirit's desire is that we be focused on Jesus Christ, not Himself. That is the Spirit's chief ministry. He is pointing us to Jesus, bringing Christ more clearly into focus. When the Holy Spirit becomes an end in Himself, then we have misunderstood His ministry. Kevin DeYoung writes this, Exulting in Christ is evidence of the Spirit's work. The focus of the church is not on the dove, but on the cross. That's the way the Spirit would have it. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorites, he writes this, The Spirit does not glorify Himself. He glorifies the Son. This is to me one of the most amazing and remarkable things about the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seems to hide Himself and to conceal Himself. He is always, as it were, putting the focus on the Son. And that is why I believe, and I believe profoundly, that the best test of all as to whether we have received the Spirit is to ask ourselves, 
What do we think of and what do we know about the Son? Is the Son real to us? That is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is glorified indirectly. He is always pointing us to the Son. Show me a ministry that is focused upon the person, the work, or a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And I will show you a ministry that is not in any way run by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God does not draw attention to Himself. You know what the Spirit of God draws attention to? The truth. Because He's the Spirit of truth. Show me a people that love the truth and love the one who is the truth. That is where the Spirit of God dwells. That is where the Spirit of God is at work. Pastor and theologian Dan Phillips, who runs an online blog called The Pyromaniacs. I love that just because of the name, The Pyromaniacs. He writes this, show me, and by the way, pyromaniacs, the fire has nothing to do, there's no connection at all to the fire of the Holy Spirit. He just burns up your straw men and your uh, sacred cows. That's what that's all about. Dan Phillips writes this, show me a person obsessed with the Holy Spirit and his gifts, real or imagined, and I will show you a person not filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I'll just stop for a second and let that sink in. Show me a person obsessed with the Holy Spirit and I will show you somebody not filled with the Holy Spirit. So he writes this, Show me a person focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ, never tiring of learning about him, thinking about him, boasting of him, speaking about him and for him, thrilled and entranced with his perfections and beauty, finding ways to serve and exalt him, tirelessly exploring ways to spend and be spent for him, growing in character to be more and more like him, and I will show you a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. To the degree that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are targeted on, focused on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. That's it. To the degree that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, our focus will be on Christ. We sang the song, more about Jesus, more about Jesus. That's the heart cry of a spirit-filled person. Not more Holy Spirit, show me more of yourself, let me experience more of you, pour out on me, send me the fire, send me the anointing. All of that is completely the wrong focus. The Spirit-filled person looks to Christ. That's the work of the Spirit of God. Not a focus on the Spirit of God. To focus on the Spirit of God is to dishonor the triune God because that is not how God has set it up. The Father has set it up. He has willed to reveal Himself in the Son and the Spirit points everybody to the Son so that in looking upon a Son, we glorify and honor Him and He who honors the Son honors the Father who sent Him. That is the intention of the triune God. And to focus on another person of the Holy Trinity is to take our eyes off of Christ. And it is not the Holy Spirit that does that. It is the Spirit of Antichrist that does that. It is the spirit of Antichrist that takes our attention off of the Holy Spirit and puts it on anything else. Listen, even if it is the works and ministry of another person of the Trinity. Because the Spirit's job is to glorify the Son and to point everybody to the Son. Did you catch that? Is the modern charismatic movement a modern movement of the Holy Spirit? If it were, its focus would be the Lord Jesus Christ. But instead you will find in these movements theology about anointings and the Spirit and Pentecost and gifts and revelations and visions and dreams and what the Spirit of God is doing today and prophetic words and words of knowledge and all kinds of theology about those things. But you will not find a robust theology of atonement, of substitutionary vicarious atonement of the cross. You will not find a robust theology of the vicarious atoning work of Christ on the cross for his people and for his sheep and all of the implications of what that means and how he has done all of that and then entered into, hen- into heaven to begin his intercessory work for his church. You will not find, are there exceptions? I'm sure there are exceptions. I'm sure there are exceptions. But by and large, the ministry, the entire movement itself is not characterized by a robust theology of Jesus Christ and the cross. It's the theology of Pentecost. 
If it were a movement of the Spirit of God, the emphasis and the focus and attention would be on the cross and not on Pentecost. Why? Because Jesus said, I will send the Spirit, and when he comes, he will guide you into truth, and he will glorify me, not himself, not his gifts, not his callings, not his talents, nothing that goes of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't glorify the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a person filled with the Spirit of God? How will you know? When you delight in and love the truth, and when your focus and your attention is on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, then you know the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, doing what Jesus sent the Spirit to do, so that we may look upon Christ and behold the glory of the triune God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we we thank you that you have willed to reveal yourself in the way that you have. We delight in your work of showing us Christ, and we delight in him. Thank you for what he has done in dying on our behalf and in our place, that you have opened our eyes to that, that you have regenerated our hearts, that you have fixed our affections upon Christ. All these things are the work of your spirit, and we know that we have the spirit dwelling in us because we love your son who is the truth. And we pray that you would fix our hearts on these things. Help us not to be deceived by things which claim to be works of your Spirit and might even be baptized in spiritual-sounding language but have nothing at all to do with the work of the Spirit. May we instead delight in and love the one who is the truth. Increase our love for Christ in our hearts, we pray, our unity together in that love and in our affection for Christ and give to us a burning desire to know more and more of him, that you might be honored through that, that we may gaze upon what is revealed of Christ in the pages of Scripture and see the glory of our triune God. For we ask these things in in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.